Good morning. It's good to see you as we continue our study of encounters with Jesus in the Gospel of Luke and um, uh, looking at a famous parable that uh, Jesus told about uh, two people going to pray. Uh, I have a friend who worked for a national uh, insurance brokerage, and he was telling me about their annual convention that they would have, uh, and the managers from every office all over the country would gather for the convention, and they would each report on how their office had done that year, and they'd celebrate the sales. But this is a little bit different because they would end with the office that had done the best, and of course, that manager would get up and he would receive a rousing applause and, uh, and lavish uh, uh, bonuses, and it was just a great celebration. But they actually went in order of offices by their performance. They started off with the worst performing office. And if you're the manager of the worst performing office, you had to go first, and you had to stand up in front of the entire company and explain why your sales were below average. And he said it was a deeply embarrassing, shameful, difficult experience. But he said the good news is you only had to do it once. Because if you ever came in last again, you would not be with the company any longer. And so everyone at the company understood that acceptance is predicated on performance. Acceptance is predicated on performance. Now, my friend, he was always a very good performer. He was never in risk, and yet he lived under that pressure, that anxiety, and it caused him tremendous stress because you always are wondering if you're going to measure up. And, and I think that's how oftentimes we feel just in life in general, that, that uh, acceptance is predicated on performance, and, and we believe that. We, we drive our sense of worth from what we accomplish, you know, whether we're successful at work, uh, parents get a lot of their worth from how their kids do. That starts off, you know, with the APGAR test, you know, all the way to how your children are performing when they're grown to the grandchildren, and you get your identity from those things, to whether or not people like you. And we even compare ourselves to one another morally, and uh, we get our worth from that. And so, simply put, we believe we're justified by works. We're justified by works, either our work at work or our work with our family or morality. We get our justification our sense of worth from what we do. Uh, your, your worth equals your performance. But the challenge arises when your performance is not good enough. What do you do then? Well, Jesus tells this parable about two men who go to pray, and they, they both feel the pressure to perform. And at first glance, it looks like one of the men is able to meet the performance standard, while the other man is not able to meet the performance standard. But if you look closer, we'll see that neither of these men measure up. Neither of them are actually good enough. And so what differentiates them is not so much their performance, but their response to their failure to perform. And so let's look a little bit more at this. Let's begin by looking at the Pharisee, uh, the man by all appearances, even in his own eyes, thought he was doing a great job. He thought he was hitting the bar, performing well, thinking he's succeeding. How does he deal with this failure? And the first thing we see is the seductiveness of self-righteousness. The seductiveness of self-righteousness. Now, when the Pharisees show up on the pages of the New Testament, it's almost like they, they wear a black hat and you know to boo. You uh, know that they are the bad guys. You know that they are, are generally uh, not portrayed favorably. And we get this impression of the Pharisees from parables like this particular one. However, in Jesus' day, the Pharisees were extremely popular. 
They're, they're the most respected of all of the religious sects, and that's why this parable would have been so shocking, because the Sadducees and the priests were corrupt. They're rich, they're corrupt, they're selling out to the government. The Pharisees were trying to follow all the rules. In fact, because they were following all the rules, they were giving to the poor as the law required. And so, so people greatly admired the Pharisees for their, for their uh, dedication. And so, the, so as you think about the Pharisees, uh, the Pharisees felt morally superior to everyone else because, well, they were morally superior to everyone else. And they were acceptable in their view because their performance was exceptional. But that's the case with this Pharisee. If you look in verses 11 and 12, he tells God the things he does and doesn't do. He doesn't commit adultery. He's not an extortionist. He, he tithes. He, he even fasts twice a week. Now, I have to say that's impressive. Fasting twice a week, fasting twice a year, fasting twice a decade is impressive. And here he, they fast twice a week. And, and so he is uh, exceptionally committed uh, to his, his, his uh, religion. And so, you know, he ties off of everything. But notice what the Pharisee feels good about, and notice what he excludes. He, he feels good about himself because he's focusing on those things that he does, and he, he's, he's He's not looking at the whole law of God. In fact, he has a rather truncated view of the law of God. He's, he's reduced the law of God down to a set of standards, a set of behaviors that he is capable of performing. But he's not looking at the whole law of God. This is what's called focus illusion. He is focusing on those few things that he's doing exceptionally well while ignoring the broader teachings of the law of God. And so, so this Pharisee doesn't keep the law. In fact, his prayer shows that he doesn't keep the law. The, the very reason Jesus even brings this up is, is the law of God, all the commandments of God, flow from and are summarized in two commandments. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and all your mind, and all your strength. And what's the second? And you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And yet, notice that Jesus says, both before and during the parable, you can see it, this man has contempt for his neighbor. Uh, he, he prays before God, but he shows no love for his neighbor, and in fact, he shows uh, this, this uh, tax collector with utter disdain. He believes he is righteous because he's only focusing on the parts of the law that he's able to fulfill. You know, one of the challenges that, that we all have in, in trying to, to see ourselves accurately is you, know, you, you can't. In fact, you've never actually seen what you really look like, in a sense. You, you can't look at yourself. Even when you look in a mirror, you look backwards. That's why when you see a picture of yourself, you're going, is that right? Uh, you, you, can't, you can't see yourself. And, and even when we do see ourselves, we tend to, to see ourselves through a bit of a distorted lens. Again, we have something known as confirmation bias. Uh, we, all of us suffer from this. Confirmation bias uh, is that when you, you look at data that confirms your beliefs and you accept that, but you filter out data that does not correspond to your beliefs. And, and studies have shown this, that the more emotional you are about a particular belief, the stronger your confirmation bias will be. So for example, a uh, classic example of this was smoking. 
You know, back in the 1960s, uh, it was still somewhat debated among some that whether or not smoking was harmful. I mean, they generally knew. But what would happen is, is different reports would come out about the health effects of smoking. And they found out that people who smoked were much more likely to read uh, articles that had the headlines that smoking does not lead to lung cancer than they were to read articles that had the headline, smoking leads to lung cancer. We filter out the information that we, we don't like. We select data that confirms what we want. And we do the same thing when we evaluate our own behavior. In fact, your memory works this way. You remember when you ate the salad. You don't remember when you ate the Oreos. And, and it's not just that you're, you have a faulty memory. I mean, this is, this is really true. You don't have just a faulty memory. You have a, a memory that's faulty, biased towards your ego. And, and this is a, a, a human plot. Uh, but there are times when the data is so overwhelming that it overcomes our biases. I, I had this experience a number of years ago. I think I've told some of you about this. I, uh, I'd been uh, exercising all summer. I thought I was in the best shape of my life. And then I was looking through some family vacation photos and we'd gone to Yellowstone and we'd uh, you know, gone into those hot pools that were Yellowstone. And so my daughter had a picture of all these people in their bathing suits at uh, the Yellowstone hot pool. And, and I look and there's this, this middle-aged man in the middle and he has this pasty white skin wearing a red swimsuit and a belly from eating too many Krispy Kremes. And I look at it and I go, that's me. I look like a pregnant polar bear. It's, um, and, and, and also, I, I, thought, I thought I was in good shape. I, I thought I was okay. And I look at the picture, and the, and the camera doesn't lie. I mean, I, I'm, that's me. And, and it was uh, convicting and, and highly motivating, actually, uh, for me at that point. And that's what happens when we take a look at ourselves through the lens of the whole law, not just part of the law, when we look at ourselves through the entire law of God. In fact, Jesus does this in Matthew 23 with the Pharisees. In Matthew 23, Jesus goes through a series of seven woes. He says, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees. Now, the word woe is not a word that we use very often uh, in modern language. And in fact, in, in the, as Jesus uses this word, the word woe can sometimes just be a statement of grief, you know, oh, woe is me, but it also can be uh, a judgment, a curse. And the closest equivalent we would have to this in the modern language, and translators just don't want to do this, is, is damn you. And so what Jesus does with these, these seven series of damning statements to the, to the Pharisees, in verse 23 of Matthew 23, he says, woe to you, I mean, really saying, damn you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. What Jesus is saying, the problem with the Pharisees is not that they're too strict about the law. We tend to think the Pharisees are too uptight. Jesus is not saying that. Jesus says, you ought to tithe. I mean, you, you, you ought to do these things that you're doing. The problem is not that you're, you're those things. The problem is you're not keeping the rest of the law. You're neglecting the weightier matters of the law. They're, they're not evaluating themselves according to the true law of God. They're evaluating themselves to, towards a, a truncated, very selective section of rules and, and so that they feel good about themselves. And, and not only that, they've inverted it. 
they, they, they've switched the price tags. They've, they've made the, the less important the most important, and they've made that which is most important uh, less important. So outwardly, this Pharisee is, is praying, and, and, he, and he, he seems to be performing well. He's not an extortionist or an adulterer. Good job. Right, great. Don't be an extortionist or adulterer. And he tithes and he fasts. That's great. That's fantastic. But he's neglecting. He's neglecting the weightier, weightier matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. Jesus does not say that tithing is unimportant. Rather, he's saying how you treat your fellow human, how you fe- treat your fellow human being is more important than these things. And, and here's the danger, and it's a very real danger for those of us in the church. And the danger is that we will feel good about ourselves because we've reduced the law of God down to a standard of generally acceptable uh, evangelical behavior, and we pat ourselves on the back because we're doing that while neglecting, neglecting the weightier matters of the law. We have a fatally truncated, reductionistic view of God's holiness and His righteous requirements. And nearly as bad, uh, we, we've switched the price tags. We've trivialized the importance of justice, mercy, and faithfulness, and we ignore the weightier matters. Do you remember what God said through his prophet Micah uh, to his people? He said, he has shown you, O man, what is good and what the Lord requires of you, but to act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. Those are to be the, the essential marks of God's people. But like the Pharisees, we compare ourselves to others around us with inverted values. There are some people who get more upset when someone says a cuss word than they would if they hear someone call a woman a feminazi or someone a right-wing nut job. You get more upset when someone says happy holidays rather than Merry Christmas than you do when someone mocks Asians because because of the coronavirus. Swearing is anathema, but gossip which is vandalism of the soul, is perfectly acceptable. Do you see how we switched things? You see how we reverted things? And so, and I I can feel your reaction. I can feel it uh, because I feel it in my own heart. And and what you want to say is what I want to say, but but what about, but what about, but what about the other side? They do this, but they do that. And as soon as you do that, as soon as you begin to point out the faults of the other people and how you're better than they are, you're going exactly to the place where Jesus is addressing. Jesus is speaking right to your heart. And this is the heart of the problem. Because when you begin to compare yourselves to others and look at how you're better, what you're doing is what Jesus says as he introduces the parable, you are seeking to justify yourself. It is self-justification. And, and so as we seek to justify ourselves, as long as you try to justify yourselves based on your own performance, you will never be justified before God. As long as you're justifying yourself, you will never be justified. The law of God is the standard for holiness, not part of the law, not just the behavioral points, not just the, the things that some have deemed important, but the entire law of God. And even good, behavior, uh, are, even good behaviors are meaningless if they are not done out of love for God and love for neighbor. Anything you do 
even if it's good, even if it is the right thing, if it is not done out of love, is sin. The two great commandments, love God, love your neighbor. George Whitfield uh, was an early American preacher, preached during the Great Awakening, uh, 18th century, just a huge revival. And, and, and part of his preaching was directed at, at church people and bringing about the gospel to, to, to Christians or people who called themselves Christians. In one of his sermons, he said this. He said, our best duties are so many splendid sins. Before you can speak peace to your hearts, you must not only repent of your sin, but repent of your righteousness. Now, what does he mean by that? He means that, that we have this tendency to want to come before God and others and say, but look at the good that I've done. Look at my righteousness. Look at how I'm better than other people. Look at this. And, and, and Whitfield is saying, and this is from Scripture, he's saying, saying that as, as long as you're doing that, you not only need to repent of your sin, you need to repent of your righteousness because all of your righteousness is but filthy rags. Our only hope is in Christ alone. So in order to know God's love, you not only repent of your sins, but of your righteousness. As the old hymn says, beautiful, rich theology in this old hymn, Nothing in my hand I bring, simply to your cross I cling. It is our only hope. We cannot justify ourselves, only Christ can justify us. You may be just like the Pharisee. The very thing keeping you from God is not your sin, but your delusions of your own moral righteousness, because your own moral goodness is keeping you from seeing your need from the Savior. Jesus said of this Pharisee, he walked away, not justified, because he did not see his own sin and his own need of a Savior. The, so the Pharisee comes and he prays, and he prays seeking to bring his righteousness before God. He's looking to his performance. But notice how the tax collector prays. He has a completely different response. He responds by seeking God's mercy. So in his prayer, we see the saving power of grace, the saving power of grace. Look again at verse 13. But the tax collector standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And we looked at tax collectors a couple weeks ago. We will again next week. Uh, tax collectors are not like IRS agents. Uh, it's a very different thing. Uh, to uh, IRS agents are public servants. Uh, tax collectors in Jesus' days were, were extortionists and traitors. They were working for the Roman government. The Roman government uh, was an oppressive power uh, in Israel. And so they were working for the Roman government, collecting taxes for the evil empire. And those taxes were going to used actually to oppress the people further. And so they were extorting money from their fellow Jews to collect these taxes. And so often in the New Testament, tax collectors are, are paired with, with sinners, which is those who are so immoral, so unclean, that they're unfit for good society. So when people heard Jesus tell this parable, the first thing that would have been shocking to them was that the tax collector even bothered to pray. I mean, how did he even get near the temple? I mean, he, he, you know, what right does he think he even has to pray? He, he should not be there. Uh, he, he's as wicked as you could get. How dare he? And here's the fundamental difference between the Pharisee and the tax collector, the moralist and the sinner. The Pharisee prays on the basis of his own worthiness. The tax collector comes and prays on the basis of his unworthiness. 
One comes with his own righteousness, the other comes with his need. The Pharisee prays to give God his good record. God, here's why you should bless me. But the tax collector and the sinner prays to get mercy from God. The tax collector prays out of desperation. He had such a keen awareness of his sin that, that he doesn't even go near. He, he stands at a distance, and when he prays, he doesn't look towards heaven. He, he, he hides his face, as it were. He bends down low in humility because he recognizes he is not worthy uh, to come before God and to pray. And so, the tax collector is praying out of desperation. He, by this, what he's doing, he's asking God for forgiveness and as he prays for forgiveness, literally what he's asking God to do is to make atonement for his sin. He says, Lord, I have this sin, and my sin is great, and I can't do anything about it, and I'm asking you to take it away. Only you can take it away. God, I know if you treated me as my sins deserved, I'd receive your wrath. I deserve your punishment. But God, I'm not asking you to treat me as my sins deserve. I'm pleading with you, do not give me justice. Instead, O oh Lord, give me mercy. Show me mercy. Have you ever had such a strong awareness of your sin that you felt like you could not even pray? I've had those moments when, when my sin was just so aware, and I, and I, and I won't pray. I, I, just, I, I, I just feel like I can't pray. You know, that's actually spiritual warfare. That's Satan at work. Those moments when you feel most unworthy to pray, that's actually when you're most ready to pray. Because in those moments when you think you deserve for God to answer your prayers, you're missing the boat. You don't understand the gospel. It's in those moments when you see your sin, your own neediness, your own weakness, uh, that, that you, you know uh, that, that that's the time you're ready to come before God to seek his grace. And at this point, after telling this, Jesus gives us the punchline, verse 14. I tell you, this man, this tax collector, went down to his house justified. Justified, that means he's not just declared righteous, that God says you are righteous. He is righteous uh, rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and the one who humbles himself will be exalted. The tax collector, the extortionist, the traitor, left the temple a completely righteous person. The Pharisee, the one who had never done anything like what this tax collector had done, still left in the midst of his sins. As long as you approach God on the basis of your goodness, as long as you come on the basis of your works, as long as you come on the basis of your record, you cannot know and experience the love of God. You cannot know what it means to be righteous because all you have is your own. As Paul writes in Ephesians, it's for by grace you have been saved, and that through faith, not of works, but it is a gift of God. Uh, it's not a result of any works so that no one may boast. And so we come before God, and we receive his righteousness, not through what we do, not through our effort, not through our religiosity, not through our fasting, not through our tithing, not through anything we do. We receive it merely as a gift by trusting in what Jesus Christ has done for us. Now, the word that the Bible uses for grace is a, is a common word, and it's the word charis. Uh, and, and we get many different words from it in, in English, but one is the word charity. Charity. 
And, and we all like charity. Um, in fact, we think charity is a good thing. We just don't want to need it. We all want to give to charity. And in fact, you know, we feel good when we give to charity. But have you ever been in that position where you needed charity? It, it's, it's humbling. In fact, humbling is not the right word. It's humiliating. To, to come before someone and, and say, you know what? I'm broke. I can't fix this. I, I've made a mess. I don't know what to do. I, I, I need help. It, it, it can be crushing. And yet for us to come before God... We can't come before God and say, Lord, I've, I've got something. We have to come before God and say, I need everything. You know how resistant we are to charity is, is that, that we're so resistant to, to, to take it that we, we, won't even, we won't even take it from a friend in a casual setting. Two people go to lunch. The friend offers to buy. You go, no, 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 let me get it, right? And, 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 then, and then if they do buy, what do you say? Well, at least let me get the tip, or I'll buy next time. Because, because we don't want charity. I don't want to be needy. I, I mean, I want to stand on my own two feet. And yet the only way, the only way to know the love of God is to receive His charity. See, our, our aversion to charity is rooted in pride. It's rooted in that whole idea that we can save ourselves through our works, the Pharisees and tax, uh, and tax collectors, both people who are moral and immoral, religious and irreligious, find salvation the same way. Everyone who humbles himself before the Lord will be exalted. God delights to bend low to hear the prayers of the humble. He does not hear the prayers of the arrogant. But when this grabs your heart, it sets you free. See how this sets you free from your performance anxiety? I mean, because now it's like you go before God, and instead of thinking, I haven't done enough, I haven't been good enough, and instead of having to, to defend yourself and, and to, to, to argue for your record or compare yourself to others, it's like you can go before God, and now you can be honest about your sin. And, and when faults are pointed out in you, your sin is pointed out in you, instead of saying, but, but what about the other guy? You can say, you know, you're right. You know, you're right. And thank God that he's forgiven me. It sets you free. And then it sets you free to, to, because many Christians wonder, does God really love me? Does God really accept me? Because you're looking at your performance, you're going, if I were looking at that performance, I would not love me. And if God's going to love you based on your performance, you're always going to be insecure. But if you're looking then instead at what Christ has done for you, does God really love me? I'm united to Christ, then, <laughs> then God loves me. I'm free. And once you understand that, that you've been loved by God, and it sets you free from that whole performance treadmill, not only will you take delight in God's mercy towards you, but you'll take delight in showing mercy towards others. You know, at the, the Apostle Paul, the way he described himself at the end of his life, you know, early in his life he said, I'm the least of his, the apostles. Do you know what he said about himself at the end of his life? I am the chief of sinners. Not I was, I am. The more he grew in his faith, the more he knew he lived by grace. And the more he understood he lived by grace, the more his heart is poured out in compassion for those in need. And here's how you know the grace of God is gripping your heart. Because when the grace of God grips your heart, those who get grace deeply give grace generously. Well, all of our hearts are addicted to salvation by works. We want to stand on our record, we want to defend ourselves, and we are resistant to grace. 
And so today, for those of us who are gathered here, we have the privilege of coming to the Lord's table. Now, for those of you at home, I understand uh, you don't get the privilege of the sacrament today, but there will be a day when you'll join us again to feast in the house of Zion as we look forward to that day we feast with the Lord. But even at home, you can take this time to, to meditate, to, to consider your sin, not merely to be crushed by it, although it is humbling to see how you've loved your neighbor, but ultimately to see, and my Savior loves me, to rejoice in his forgiveness and his love for you so that our hearts can be transformed into loving our neighbors as well. Let's pray. Father, we come before you and we confess that the many of us are recovering Pharisees. We, we just have a natural tendency in our defensiveness to, to go towards self-righteousness. We, we look at the good that we have done and we completely overlook or minimize or explain away or excuse the way we've treated others. Lord, forgive us. Forgive us for thinking that our righteousness can ever be a record before you. Instead, O oh Lord, we pray that we would be like the tax collector and pray, O oh Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. And we thank you, O oh Lord, that as Jesus declared there, that those who come before you seeking mercy walk away justified. They're the ones who walk away righteous. So, Lord, may we believe that today, too. May we believe that because we have come before you, not because of the works of our hand, but because of the works that Christ has done, that we truly are forgiven, that we truly are loved, that we truly are righteous with the righteousness of Christ. And may we rejoice in that. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.